Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our series on the invention of the crossbow. In the previous episode, we talked about some uh, evidence of the crossbow's invention in ancient China, some uh, differences between the crossbow design and regular bow design, some differences in, in the physics of how they work and what different kinds of advantages they would have had in historical usage. And today we're back to talk about crossbows some more. Now, there there is a subject I uh, brought up in the previous episode, I think, or I think it I at least teased it, uh, that I wanted to come back to in detail. And that is the moral coding of crossbows specifically in like uh, storytelling, especially in movies, in modern movies. Mm -hmm. So I was reading a very interesting paper about this that was like a, a history slash film studies paper called X Marks the Plot, Crossbows in Medieval Film by Peter Burkholder, uh, published in the journal Studies in Popular Culture in 2015. And it starts with what I think is a pretty good example. So there's a scene many of you out there will remember from the first Lord of the Rings movie. It's from Fellowship of the Ring, which came out in 2001. It's when uh, the heroes are at Rivendell. The Fellowship is formed. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the story, it's when the adventurers from various peoples around Middle-earth pledged to band together into a, a fellowship to carry out a mission to destroy the story's MacGuffin, a wicked and powerful magic ring, to protect the people from its demonic owner, Lord Sauron. So it's sort of the ultimate good guy vibes scene. The good characters are all pledging camaraderie, pledging to help each other in the service of doing good. Yeah, in fact, I referenced this scene in the last episode. You did, did yes. Yeah. yeah, about uh, how uh, Legolas says, it's my bow, not my string. It's mm -hmm. not, yeah, it's not actually the string that stretches. Though we will get back to that concept uh, uh, later on in this episode when we get back into the, the technical uh, specifications of various crossbow designs, because sometimes it is the string. 
oh, I can't wait. Okay, so, uh, but you got the characters in the scene. You got Frodo, that's the young hobbit who commits to taking the ring to Mordor to destroy it. He's your classic uh, courage against impossible odds character. Frodo is not a warrior. He's just he's just like a a young, almost helpless little guy at first. But he uh, he ha- he has courage and he wants to do the right thing. So he's going to go destroy the ring. But then the other characters say they're going to help him. Gandalf the wizard holding the magic staff in his hand. He says, "Frodo, you're not going to do it alone. I will help." And then Aragorn, the the man, the sort of king of men in uh, Middle-earth, says, uh, you will have my sword. I don't remember. Does Sean Bean say the same thing or uh, something like that? But uh, Aragorn at least says you'll have his sword. Legolas the elf says you'll have my bow. Gimli the dwarf says and my axe. And then Merry and Pippin, the perpetually second breakfasting hobbits, also offer the help of their intelligence. Yes, yes. But in this scene... Each of the principal heroes of the story, they offer their commitment through the metaphor of the weapon they carry. Uh, And this is basically in a medieval technological regime. But the author of this paper notes that it's interesting that it's sort of trying to like show the whole span of recognizable medieval weapons, but none of these characters offers up a crossbow to help. Uh, despite the fact that Burkholder calls the crossbow, quote, one of the most readily accessible personal weapons of the Middle Ages. And I should say, I still hold this to be true. I think a crossbow is an excellent weapon for a dwarf. I think everything lines up that dwarves should be using crossbows uh, by the dozen, you know, it's just a perfect weapon for uh, imagining them use some sort of a ranged weapon within an enclosed dwarven environment. It seems to fit their, you know, their their build, their basic demeanor, their technological proficiency. Uh, I think everything lines up. I think uh, I think Gimli should have had a crossbow. Fair enough, though. The axe makes sense to me. Uh, it seems at home in his hands. But this paper argues that the absence of a crossbow. Uh, among the ranks of the good guys in the movie is neither unique nor happenstance. Uh, the, The point of this paper is that throughout modern film, there is a consistent principle that in settings with roughly medieval European technology regimes, good guys do not carry crossbows. The crossbow is the weapon of the wicked, the barbarous, the treacherous, the cruel. And secondly, in this paper, the author argues that this implicit moral gloss on different types of medieval weapons is not necessarily a modern invention. In the case of the crossbow, there are elements of this particular vilification of it going back to the medieval period itself. So in the first half of the paper, the author goes through this extensive list of movies with medieval technology regimes that implicitly associate the crossbow with wickedness. Uh, And note that these stories include both comparatively realistic period dramas or historical films, as well as high fantasy and other stories with, Mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, fully fictional settings and magic that just rely on the conventions of medieval technology. One thing he notes is that crossbows are often used to establish setting for medieval films, along with other visual cues like knights in armor, castles, catapults, etc. And this is true even in settings where it would be strictly anachronistic. For example, in stories about King Arthur, which if you're trying to sort of situate those roughly historically, that'd probably be something like 5th century Britain, where there's really no evidence that crossbows were popular, even though they had already been invented by this point. Uh, It doesn't seem like 5th century Britain uh, had a lot of crossbows in it, if any. Mm. 
but it's sort of like a shorthand. You see knights in armor, you see crossbow, you think, okay, I know where I am. It, it gets you to the, the correct mental setting very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know if he gets into this at all, but I think one of the other things about the crossbow in films is that it, 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 there is a gun-like quality to the crossbow where the, that makes the visual language of, say, um, armored guards uh, or armored goons, whatever the case may be, with crossbows, like read very similarly to modern um, tyrannical enforcement agencies. I think you might make that comparison. We'll see when we look at a few of the examples. Okay. Let's see. What do you got? Let's 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 okay. look at some films. I, I'm not going to list all the examples Burkholder gets <laughs> into in this paper because I suspect most listeners will in fact already recognize the crossbow as evil pattern themselves, but it's just worth naming a few. One he gets into that I've never seen is the 1995 film First Night, uh, which has Sean Connery as King Arthur. So this is an Arthurian legend film. Uh, Sean Connery as Arthur, Richard Gere as Lancelot. And in this movie, he says the heroes such as Lancelot are repeatedly shown demonstrating their skill with the sword. And this is a recurring theme. The sword is often represented as a kind of virtuous and honest weapon. Meanwhile, in this film, the villain, a character named Prince Malagant, played by Ben Cross, commands gangs of marauders who are all armed with crossbows, which he says are treated almost like six shooters from a Western film. Um, and also, he says in this story, the heroic King Arthur is uh, is killed by a barrage of crossbow bolts. Yeah, I think this uh, comparison to, to, to cowboy flicks is pretty solid. Uh, it reminds me of the scene in uh, the Western, The Cowboys, in which Bruce Dern's character is a, you know, a scoundrel, is beat up um, by John Wayne's character with you know, fisticuffs. And then afterwards, he shoots uh, John Wayne's character in the back. Uh, clearly, if this had been a medieval setting, he would have used a crossbow. Right. John Wayne would have the sword and the bad guy mm-hmm. would have the crossbow. Yeah. Yeah. I think I saw First Night, but I've forgotten all of it. This is no Excalibur, <laughs> but I have to stress that Ben Cross was always great. Uh-huh. Uh, Next movie, I also haven't seen this one, Uh, another Arthurian legend film. This is the 2004 film King Arthur, which not only shows Arthur's Saxon enemies using crossbows, apparently at one point uh, of this movie, one of the heroes picks up a crossbow from the ground only to like look at it and toss it away in disgust. (laughs) I did not see this one. Uh, This was a this was a strange decade for films. But, I mean, Clive Owen is author. That's got to be good. To come back to Lord of the Rings, we've established that the heroes don't use crossbows. But uh, but Burkholder mentions that the only time we actually see crossbows used in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the, fil- the Peter Jackson films, is by the forces of evil. He says crossbows are used by the Uruk-hai during their attack on Helm's Deep. Mm, those are elite orcs, though, you know? So yeah. give it to him. He's an elite uh, uh, weaponry there. Another interesting thing he points out is how in some movies the use or discarding of a crossbow can signal a change in the same character's moral or factional valence. Uh, So maybe a character uses a crossbow when acting as a villain or when we're supposed to wonder if they're a villain and then they stop using the crossbow when they become good or are revealed as good. An example cited here is Lord Arthur in the movie Army of Darkness, uh, where he apparently uses I I didn't remember this detail, but he apparently uses a crossbow when you assume he is an enemy of Ash. But then when he becomes an ally of Ash, the crossbow goes away. And instead, we see crossbows used by the deadites, the, uh, you know, the bad the monsters of the movie 
Oh, yeah. I forgot this scene as well. There's so many other scenes that definitely stick in your mind, but this is a nice, uh, nice, uh, subtle example of what you're talking about here. One more. This is not an example the author here brings up, but I was just thinking about the most prominent appearance of the crossbow in H- HBO's Game of Thrones adaptation, which as a show is notable, especially in early seasons, for moral ambiguity and, you know, what might be called grimdark realism. There's kind of a in many ways, it resists the kind of classic uh, hero-villain tropes uh, and, and the clear delineation mm-hmm. between those two. And yet, even in Game of Thrones, this crossbow pattern holds true. It is a its, its most salient use is as a weapon of torture used by King Joffrey, one of the nastiest and most sadistic characters on the show. The other main example I could think of was it is later used by a more sympathetic character, but in an act of patricide when when that character is at his lowest point. So it's still mm-hmm. it's a pretty like negatively coded weapon in, in Game of Thrones. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in both of these there are cases where the Lannisters are using them and Lannisters are are always at least in, in a little bit in the gray area, if not outright villains. Yeah. Now, the author does try to acknowledge some counterexamples, and I think it's interesting to, to look at movies that violate the pattern. One he mentions, oh boy, I think you're going to be excited about this, Rob, is Rutger Hauer and Lady Hawk from 1985. Uh, Lady Hawk, a movie that is never as good as I remember it being whenever I rewatch it, yeah. but I still love it. Like, you gotta uh-huh. love Lady Hawk. It's just kind of, it's, it's, it's just pure romance. It's beauty. I had the same experience. I remember it's been years since I watched it, but I remember wanting to like it before I watched it, watching it and thinking eh, it wasn't actually that great, but then still kind of loving it for some reason. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so Rutger Hauer in this movie, he plays a a renegade knight who uses a crossbow. He is sort of the hero of the story, but the author notes that he is portrayed as a kind of rebel or renegade character. So, uh, mm. so you know, it, maybe it's more fitting that he uses the the crossbow because he's more he's more outside the bounds of the normal medieval uh, uh, knight type uh, hero. And also here, the author notes that he you know he uses the crossbow early in the movie, but then he goes on to explain the prodigies of his family's house sword, and then he uses that more in the later parts of the film. Mm, so again, perhaps an example of casting aside the villainous crossbow when picking up the noble sword. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one more example I had to mention. Another movie for I haven't seen. A lot of these are like medieval movies from the 2000s that never got in front of my eyes. Uh, but apparently the good guys use crossbows in the medieval sci-fi time travel movie Timeline from 2003 based on the novel by Michael Crichton. Again, I haven't seen it, but the author here notes that the movie flopped and I laughed out loud when I read that because I was like, wait, is he saying that it flopped because it depicted crossbows coming to the rescue? <laughs> Unclear. There's probably no real connection here, but it is worth notable that Lady Hawk and Timeline were both directed by Richard Donner. So I don't know. Mm. Maybe he just really liked crossbows or had some sort of like there's so many so many factors that go into, I guess, making these kind of decisions for film. Uh, you know, could have been something where it's like, well, crossbows are easier to to, to block and use. I don't know. So it's not uh, it's not absolutely universal. You can think of a few counterexamples, but I do think by and large, this is very true throughout the language of modern films with historical and fantasy medieval settings. I would have to agree it is remarkably consistent how the crossbow, in contrast to other medieval weapons like the sword and the traditional bow, is used to convey the negative traits of the person who wields it. Yeah, I think this is this is absolutely true when you look at the, uh, you know, all the, the examples here. Um, and, uh, and I'm certainly not going to sit around and come up with a bunch of counterexamples. But I think one counterexample is worth mentioning. 
because it, it has uh, folkloric uh, origins and then also resonates through media. And that's uh, Swiss folk hero William Tell. Mm. This was a 14th century mountaineer, assassin, and crossbow marksman, um, again, of, of Swiss folklore and legend. Uh, his The legends range from shooting an apple off of a person's head. If, if you're aware of nothing else concerning this character, you probably know about, about that little episode just because it's been portrayed in cartoons and so forth. But other things he gets into, like he slays a chimera. Mm. So he does all sorts of stuff. Um, but his his more realistic exploits position him as an assassin of evildoers and tyrants with a crossbow, a, a weapon that, as we've discussed before, uh, democratizes ranged lethal violence, you know, and certainly factors into, uh, for instance, in the Chinese, one of the Chinese examples we mentioned in the last episode, uh, a way that uh, people outside of, a, of an actual military group could potentially uh, do harm or fight back against uh, their overlords. So I think it's, you know, it's worth considering this as a notable folkloric exception to the rule. And of course, there are also numerous depictions of this in film and television, including the late 1980s TV series Crossbow, uh, which I remember seeing some in syndication later on. And I also distinctly remember seeing a VHS of it. Um, you know, maybe it was just like a few episodes cobbled into a movie. I'm not sure. But I remember seeing that on the, the video sh- shelf uh, as a kid. And then there are other um, older adaptations from the 50s. There was a 1998 TV series that looks really bad. Uh, there's a 1934 <laughs> movie, The Legend of William Tell. So certainly a figure with staying power within Swiss, Swiss culture, but also seems to resonate beyond it uh, into other media. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. 
brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Two more examples do come to mind because I imagine people write in. Um, there's The Walking Dead's Daryl Dixon, always using that crossbow to shoot zombies. Um, I'm not I'm not sure. I guess he's kind of positioned as an anti-hero in some respects. Like he is kind of like a a neutral character who's, you know, obviously he's not gonna side with the zombies, but you know, he has his own kind of like rogue outsider energy. And then let's not forget Wait, Patrick's. Hold up. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't mean to derail, but I've never seen that much Walking Dead. Do some people side with zombies? Um, well, I think in later seasons that I have not seen, there are certainly individuals who become more like the zombies through their um their cruelty and their um and their wretchedness. And oh, there are okay. some that find ways to use zombies and mm. become more zombie like in their use of them. So in a sense there are those who side with zombies, but yeah, The Walking Dead's mostly about like humans being horrible and zombies just being zombies. Zombies are kind of neutral. Like you can't hate the zombie for being a zombie, but there are plenty of reasons to hate most of the human characters in my experience. Oh yeah. I think that's a classic zombie movie thing where usually the villain is other living humans and the, the zombies are more like the setting. Yeah. But Daryl Dixon, a, a, a favorite character of many on the TV show. I don't think he's in the comics at all. Uh, but the other one that came to mind, and this is what movie I've n- not seen, but I, again, just remember seeing the, the VHS box art all the time. Patrick Swayze's Next of Kin from 1989. I think he uses a bow in it as well, but there are also scenes where he's, he's using a crossbow. There's some sort of an action sequence in a cemetery where he's running around oh. with that crossbow. I've never seen this one either. Yeah. Well, it has, uh, it has Bill Paxton in it, and it also has Neeson's. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's not supposed to be very good. <laughs> it exists. Well, so uh, to come back to the 
the points made in, in Burkholder's paper, uh, we sort of already raised this, but it's interesting to contrast the the villainous associations in film uh, of the crossbow with the sword, which is almost always used to convey admirable traits and moral virtue. Uh, and of course, this seems like if you really think about it, it's, it's kind of a, a silly way to split things up. Like they're both weapons and so they could both be used for evil like just as easily a sword or a traditional bow could be used for murder or or something else evil and a crossbow could be used by whatever we see the the good characters using swords for in this movie i don't know self-defense or defense of others or something yeah absolutely Uh, i mean a sword carries a great deal of symbolic power but at the end of the day it is a murder weapon and a symbol of terror no one is out there hunting a deer with a long sword that's well, I was going to say that's true, but I don't know. Maybe some people hunt deer with swords. It seems well, unlikely it, to me. It's a, unli- it would be a highly ineffective weapon <laughs> yeah. to use that way. For hunting, yeah. It was clearly not designed as such. Uh, but the longsword was designed with clear intention. The longsword, the, the dagger, the dirt, most of these, um, these, these implements, they are made to kill and mutilate human beings. So one wonders, like, where do these associations come from? How come it is in these modern stories, especially on film, that the sword is seen as good and the crossbow is seen as bad? Um, and, and a question raised in this paper is, was the crossbow seen as fundamentally more evil than other weapons at the time when its use was common, especially in war in, say, medieval Europe? And the answer is complicated, but to some extent and in some cases, yes, there are medieval writings that indicate something uniquely bad about the crossbow. But I want to stress this was clearly not everyone's opinion, and it certainly didn't stop people, especially armies and militias, from using it. One extremely famous example of a medieval work vilifying the crossbow in particular over other weapons, and you'll see this example cited very often, is from the Alexiad, a biography of the 11th to 12th century Byzantine emperor Alexios I Komnena, written by his daughter, the Byzantine princess Anna Komnena. Uh, listeners of the show might remember our episode on Greek fire. We, uh, we, we cite this source as well in that episode. And I believe we had Annie Reese come on and, and, and read it in the cold open. Mm. Oh yeah. Well, thanks again to Annie for that. We, we didn't get her on hand today, so I'm going to have to read from it myself for this time. Um, but yes, uh, so there is, a, so Anna Komnena was writing this work while she was in exile in a monastery in the later years of her life. And uh, a passage of this work that has attracted a lot of attention is Anna's eyewitness account of the arrival of crusaders in Constantinople in the years 1096 and 1097. Uh, The account is very vivid and it contains some confusing claims. So I'm going to read what she says about the crossbow. And the translation that I'm using here is the one uh, block cited in a book that I mentioned in the last episode, but I'll mention it again here. The Medieval Crossbow by Stuart Ellis Gorman from Pen and Sword Military Press in 2022. So this is what Anna Komnena writes. The crossbow is a weapon of the barbarians, absolutely unknown to the Greeks. And by barbarians there, she's referring to Western European crusaders, uh, probably especially the Franks. She goes on, In order to stretch it, one does not pull the string with the right hand while pushing the bow with the left away from the body. 
This instrument of war, which fires weapons to enormous distances, has to be stretched by lying almost on one's back. Each foot is pressed forcibly against the half-circles of the bow, and the two hands tug at the bow, pulling with all one's strength towards the body. At the midpoint of the string is a groove, shaped like a cylinder cut in half and fitted to the string itself. It is about the length of a fair-sized arrow, extending from the string to the center of the bow. Along this groove, arrows of all kinds are fired. They are short, but extremely thick with a heavy iron tip. In the firing, the string exerts tremendous violence and force, so that the missiles, wherever they strike, do not rebound. In fact, they transfix a shield but through a heavy iron breastplate and resume their flight on the far side. So irresistible and violent is the discharge. An arrow of this type has been known to make its way right through a bronze statue. And when fired at the wall of the very great town, its point either protruded from the inner side or buried itself in the wall and disappeared altogether. Such is the crossbow, a truly diabolical machine. Now, uh, Ellis Gorman makes a few observations about this passage. Uh, First of all, even though it is clearly exaggerating in some cases about like the power of a handheld crossbow bolt saying that it will go through a city wall or like through a, straight through a bronze statue and come out the other side, it does give a clear description of how the crossbow works. And I thought it was interesting uh, where she describes people having to lie on their backs on the ground in order mm -hmm. to, to span it or to pull back the mechanism to lock with the trigger, uh, like, we, like you were talking about in the last episode, possibly with the ancient Chinese example, I think. Yeah, yeah, about there being like different, um, different ways of loading some of these different crossbows. And one of them was like laying down and having to use your feet uh, to, to pull it back into position. Ellis Gorman says it's confusing why she says the crossbow was unknown in Byzantium because other evidence indicates it was probably known at least somewhat, if not widely used, in Imperial Rome, and the Byzantine Empire was descended from the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Uh, but it's possible that the technology had fallen out of favor in Byzantium and, been, and had been forgotten by many. But the point of the passage, more than to create a continuous history of military technology, was to praise her father and to condemn the barbarity of the Western European crusaders. So her comments about the crossbow seem, seem kind of aimed at that purpose. Yeah, she has a clear agenda here because otherwise, if you take her literally, it's like she's saying crossbow, absolutely diabolical. Our secret fire weapon, totally above board. <laughs> Yeah, so it's possible it's just like here it is described as partic a, a worse weapon than others because it is the weapon used by, by people she saw as wicked and barbaric. Mm -hmm. So coming back to uh, Burkholder's paper, he discusses at some length this passage by Anna Komnena. But he also points out medieval sculpture depicting crossbows in the hands of demonic figures. Uh, so, for example, at the Church of St. Cernan in uh, Toulouse, France, there is a 12th century pillar that has sculptures of demons squatting on top of it, uh, clutching crossbows and bolts. And there are others as well. But he tempers these observations by pointing out that uh, medieval European personifications of like death and disease and sin, these sort of demonic embodiments, are often wielding other weapons as well, like swords and traditional bows. So it, you shouldn't read too much into the cases where they are holding crossbows. Joe, I had to look up one of these demons with a crossbow, of course. Uh, yeah. I, I can't not look this up. Uh, and it's pretty fabulous because it's like a, a gargoyle-esque figure, you know, on, on a corner, part of a, a pillar motif. And 
Uh, it, the demon appears to be sort of squatting, but also sort of loading a crossbow, like he's he's pushing down with his feet and pulling up on the string with his his hands or claws. Mm-hmm. But also, there's something kind of perverse about it, like the the demon's kind of humping the crossbow as well. Mm, yeah, that checks out. Now, if you read sources about historical uh, views on crossbows, it is very often pointed out that the Catholic Church produced a sort of ban on the use of of crossbows in war at the Second Lateran Council in 1193, condemning, quote, the hateful and death-bringing art of crossbowmen. However, Burkholder adds a lot of context to this that shows how just this fact in isolation could be misleading. So some context is, first of all, uh, the the church's ban on the crossbow only originally applied to use against fellow Christians. Uh, And then later in the same century, the church amended that ban to say, okay, you can even use the crossbow against fellow Christians as long as it is, quote, a just war. Okay. I assume the people using it would always claim it was a just war. Yeah, they should probably put a warning on the side of the crossbow just in case, uh, only for use in just war. Also, according to some scholars, this ban was essentially completely ignored, Uh, like Christian armies just continued to use crossbows to fight each other all the time. Uh, Also, the church's proclamation didn't just attempt to ban crossbows, it attempted to ban regular bows as well, and this was also generally ignored. And then also, uh, Burkholder cites some other scholars named uh, Contamine and Strickland who point out that one, uh, among multiple possible utilities of these bands, one of them uh, it was that it was possibly just being used by military leaders to, quote, keep deadly missile weapons out of the hands of non-elites. Well, this absolutely checks out with a lot of what we've been discussing. Yeah, It's OK if we have the crossbows. We just don't want uh, uh, the people we're oppressing to have the crossbows. Uh, I was reading about this as well in Vincent van der Veen's Crossbows and Christians from a 2012 edition of Medieval Warfare. Uh, there's a quote from uh, from this very um, church ruling from 1139. Uh, I wanted to read it here. Doing my best attempt at a Michael Palin uh, um, accent from uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yes. Quote, We prohibit under anathema that murderous art of crossbowmen and archers, which is hateful to God to be employed against Christians and Catholics from now on. Who being naughty in my sight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a bad Michael Palin, Rob, but still, uh, we, we, yeah, apparently this, this ruling was not, not much heated. It was mostly <laughs> ignored. But anyway, uh, there's, there's a brief passage where uh, Burkholder cites another scholar named uh, Van Creveld to describe some of the possible mental justifications people had for especially demonizing the use of crossbows. Again, you know, it's not hard to see why any uh, any deadly weapon would have negative connotations attached to it, but like why the crossbow more than like a regular bow or more than a sword. Um, when comparing missile weapons, uh, which would include regular bows to swords, one thing that gets mentioned in this paper is uh, that it in some ways, quote, threatened an idealized form of close quarter combat. So maybe not that there that there's actually anything beautiful or noble about people like swinging swords at each other, bashing each other with handheld weapons. But that was an activity that had been idealized in literature and storytelling and thus had more poetic drama to it, totally apart from the reality of that physically happening. Mm. 
Yeah, and it again, it makes sense that this kind of view would be very uh, would very much be a top down uh, viewpoint, whereas yeah. something like William Tell that would be uh, something that arises from uh, from the people uh, as opposed to from the, the the powers that be. Though I, saying that without again not being an expert on William Tell, you can also imagine the case where. Um, you know, the people would have their folk hero and then the powers that be might be like, well, yeah, but he was using a crossbow. What does that tell you about this guy? Yeah. Another possible mental motivation for this focus on the crossbow as like the weapon of a villain is the idea that it somehow gives users a supposed unfair advantage that uh, the, the idea. And again, I, we, we talked about this in the last episode. It's not like you didn't have to train to use a crossbow like it did take skill and it did take training, but it probably didn't take the level of like muscular physical fitness required uh, and and probably maybe not the the same amount of practice required for a traditional bow that you would, you know, draw and hold with just the strength of your arms uh, or maybe a sword as well. Yeah, yeah, it's. It's fascinating to think about about this, though, because, of course, the crossbow is, is eventually replaced by advances in gunpowder technology and, of course, the, the, the coming of the age of the gun. And reading the gun by any of these moral standards, like the gun is inherently uh, a coward's weapon and a weakling's weapon, but, of course, it, it comes to rule the day. That's true, but some sources do say that a lot of the ways the crossbow is viewed and treated in culture do end up sort of mapping on to early uses of gunpowder weapons. Mm -hmm. I wanted to mention one more thing uh, that might be motivating uh, sort of demonization of the crossbow when compared to the longbow. Uh, in in films, which is a sort of inherited bias in favor of the English in the depiction of English versus French conflicts, where in reality, both sides actually did use crossbows at various times. But the use of crossbows by the Continental Armies, by the French, is more, uh, I think that it did actually happen more, and it certainly is emphasized more in historical accounts that the French had crossbows. Um, uh, so, like, for example, uh, the the author of this paper mentions movies about Joan of Arc, which depict Joan's French armies carrying crossbows against the longbow-armed English, uh, and that how showing things uh, like this feels like it's sort of violating the normal language of cinema. If like the audience is supposed to be on Joan's side and and they're the ones that have crossbows, <laughs> you know, real quick, uh, coming back to Monty Python and the Holy Grail, there of course is a scene where they encounter the French, and if memory serves, the Frenchmen do not have crossbows, but they do wield an unfair ranged uh, weapon against uh, our our English knights, and that of course is insults. So perhaps there's some connective tissue there. I'm not sure. It leads to one of my favorite details in that whole movie that is quite easy to miss, actually. It's not even a spoken line. It's the fact that uh, uh, John Cleese playing Lancelot, uh, went, after they get insulted by the French, he draws his sword and starts hitting the castle with the sword. <laughs> I think it's one of, one of the best gags in the movie. Mm-hmm. But to, to sum it up, is there a bias in contemporary historical sources uh, uh, about the use of crossbows that treats them in this same way that views them as villainous? It's not universal, but there are some sources like that. And it may be that those sources have been influential and have sort of come through and become inherited as part of the language of medieval films. 
yeah, this is going to be very interesting to think about. Um, just in general, as as we all continue to watch films that have at least a medieval flavoring to them, uh, or to read books that have medieval flavoring to them. I was just reading uh, from a fantasy novel last night, and there's a scene where people were being shot out by cross- with, with crossbows, and of course, it's uh, it's like rogues and assassins who are using the crossbow. Um, mm, yeah, but uh, and and certainly on future episodes of Weird House Cinema. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. You write the books, Jean. I've lost her on the business. I understand now. She's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Now to come back uh, to the crossbow itself, uh, first of all, I just want to pick up a few odds and ends that I didn't uh, get to discussing just sort of the, the history and, and innovation of the crossbow, particularly, first of all, more in the West. According to Fagan and Rowley Conley, the Romans have uh, for them an early explicit textual reference to the crossbows, uh, and they would have been in use by the Roman army by the 4th century CE. Um, the Vigidius actually refers to these in the book uh, concerning military matters. Uh, but uh, the authors here point out that uh, even the bow drawing mechanisms varied. We've discussed some of these already. Laying down, um, you know, uh, strap, putting your feet into straps, uh, you know, kind of like uh, you know, boot holes on the, the end of the crossbow. Mm-hmm. There was also the Greek belly bow or the gastro, gastrofetis. Uh, this is described in the first century CE and was loaded by bracing the crossbow against the ground and forcing the butt of the thing into your belly. I don't know if that makes complete sense. I included a, an illustration here for you, Joe. Mm. Well, I'm seeing the the figure in the illustration you're providing where it's like he's almost like lean, he's leaning down on the crossbow with his belly on it with the bottom against the ground. So he's like pressing. And I guess I don't understand how the pressing would cause it to uh, be spanned or to be what, what you might call like loaded or cocked. I guess maybe... One way of interpreting this, uh, though I don't know, is like if there are two actual shafts that can slide across each other. So by pressing on one, he is sliding it down the length of the other and that draws back the string. I guess that's possible. Yeah, uh, basically, it looks like he's giving himself an incorrect Heimlich maneuver with the crossbow with the business end pointed at the ground. On the end of the crossbow, the business end of the crossbow, there's this shaft. And as that is pushed down, as, the, as that's forced down, it's going to push the, um, you see it, sl- it would slide I and see. push the, um, uh, and would draw the bow, and then it would lock. That makes sense now. Yeah, okay. Because a lot of the, the later, like, medieval European mechanisms I'm thinking of for spanning it would involve uh, more of a, a pulling mechanism where, say, uh, a common one is, again, the, the belt hook, which we talked about last time, say the combination of a belt hook with a stirrup at the end of the crossbow. So you would hook something that's attached to the string to a uh, to a loop or a hook on your belt, and then you would push down with your foot in a stirrup on the, uh, the shaft of the crossbow, at the stirrups at the end of the crossbow. So that pulls the bow towards your foot, and it pulls the string back with the strength of your legs and your body away from it. Yeah. Now, the authors mentioned that uh, there, there were also Greco-Roman mentions of crossbows going back to the 3rd and even 5th centuries BCE. Uh, the 3rd century BCE example seems pretty valid. This is described in Sestibius, but the 5th century BCE mention seems to be a catapult or a siege weapon rather than a handheld weapon. Again, getting back to that that uh, something we mentioned in the last episode that apparently looking back at some of these ancient texts, if you get into this gray area when you're trying to determine, are we talking about a crossbow here or are we talking about some form of catapult? Yeah, and that ambiguity doesn't stop there, by the way. I've read that historical study of crossbows is in multiple ways complicated by ambiguity and confusion about the names used for weapons and texts and trying to understand exactly what they're talking about. Yeah. Now, one more uh, sort of like cocking or drawing mechanism of note. You also have the goat foot lever uh, that was that appeared on a number of crossbows, and this was basically a lever device um, that was used to draw the bow. Um, I looked at looking at images of it. I, I guess the goat foot comes because it kind of looks like a cloven hoof. There's like mm-hmm. sort of two two hooks or grooves in it. 
Yeah. And so in addition, so like the belt hook one, you would be trying to disband the crossbow just by using the strength of your body. But a lot of these mechanisms have a machine with some kind of mechanical advantage, like a lever or later you would have, you know, you could get a really powerful crossbow if you use a, a objects like a windlass or a Kranequin that would give you uh, the ability to essentially crank the string back. And that's the kind of crossbow that a dwarf should be using. I mean, that just seems perfect. Certainly a gnome in Dungeons and Dragons needs a crossbow that has cranks on it. Cranks, levers, the whole nine yards. Lots of moving parts, yeah. It makes it mm -hmm. more like a modern machine. Now, uh, with, the, with military technology and certainly with the crossbow, you know, it often comes down to trade-offs, right? So in the last episode, we definitely discussed the reloading limitations of the crossbow. And this was a problem that, innovators uh, threw themselves that pretty early on. The crossbow packs power and it offers reasonable accessibility, but is there a way to speed it up? Um, again, to, to be able to fire perhaps more crossbow bolts before too many arrows are fired at you by archers and so forth. Are there ways to do that while retaining the, the advantages of the crossbow to some measurable degree? And so this is where we get into the topic of the Chinese repeating crossbow. Uh, I was looking at a couple of sources on this. One of them is Mechanism Analysis of Ancient Cro Chinese Crossbows by Dong et al., published in the Journal of Mechanical Sciences in 2020. I was also looking at um, Structural Analysis of Ancient Chinese Crossbows from 2012 in the Journal of Science and Innovation by Xiao and Yan. And uh, the innovation in, in, in broad strokes seems to go back perhaps as early as 400 BCE, at least in principle. Uh, though there are essentially two different repeating crossbows from two different eras that you see mentioned. So this first one, this 400 BCE one, this is sometimes referred to as the Chu State repeating crossbow. Um, and evidence for this comes from archaeological finds in Jiangling, Hubei, that have been dated to this period, according to Dong et al. So this area was known as the Chu State during the Warring States period uh, that would have spanned 475 through 221 BCE. So this, this contraption uh, seemed to have had a vertical magazine on top of the crossbow of 20 arrows that dropped down into firing position via gravity. Um, and then you would, you would draw back, fire, draw back, and every time you would draw back with an empty slot for a crossbow bolt, it would drop into place. Sounds pretty advanced, sounds potentially useful, right? However, the thing to keep in mind about the true state crossbow is that it's small. It's, uh, it's only 30 centimeters long, it's less than a foot. Uh, and the, the, the bow is so short that it would have depended on the elasticity of the bowstring rather than the bending of the bow. Huh, so it's more like a slingshot almost. Yeah. And they say that it would have only had a range of about 20 to 25 meters, so I think somewhere in the range of 22 yards. But on the other hand, you'd have something like rapid fire or, you know, automatic or semi-automatic fire. Uh, as such, you know, this wouldn't have been a weapon of warfare or self-defense, they stress, but rather a novelty invention that could have best been used, at best, could have been used to hunt small birds. Uh, the authors also describe it as a, quote, toy of personal invention. That's interesting. So more of a, uh, a demonstration of principle or demonstration of ingenuity than something that would have been especially useful in this form. Right. Like, I guess if it were a Dungeons and Dragons weapon, it would just do zero damage across the board. But um, it, it's interesting. So I should also point out that the author stressed that there are no historical writings that mention this particular crossbow. And um, 
the, the idea that being like a toy of personal invention, it reminds me even of our invention episodes on the wheel, you know, in, in, in certain cultures before the wheel could actually really be capitalized upon for transportation and so forth, uh, you know, or, or other applications, there's still evidence that it was around sometimes just as a novelty, as a toy. Uh, there are various reasons that a, a, an idea or a technological innovation just cannot be, you know, uh, used, that cannot be employed for, um, for anything other than amusement, or at least for a certain period of time. Right. I'm almost tempted to wonder if in some scenarios, like making a toy version of a mechanical uh, uh, device would be kind of like taking a patent out. Like, you know, you're not making this device at scale that it would be or in a way that would be used for anything. But you can you can show the principle in small scale in a toy. Yeah. Now, the second variety of Chinese repeating crossbow is uh, the Zuge Nu or Zuge Nu repeating crossbow named for Zuge Lang, apparently, uh, 181 through 234 CE, uh, military leader and uh, prime minister of Shu Han during the Three Kingdoms period. Uh, he's also apparently the main hero of the fictional Romance of the Three Kingdoms, a 14th century historical novel. In that, he's portrayed as a sage and a military mastermind. However, um, apparently he did not actually create, invent this crossbow. Uh, his name just is associated with it um, in some records, and it just has kind of stuck. Mm -hmm. But this version of the repeating crossbow did see use and was powerful enough to serve as a lethal weapon, sometimes aided by poisoned boltheads. Mm. Military historian Chris McNabb describes it as follows in a 2020 issue of MHQ, the Quarterly Journal of Military History. Quote, it featured a top-mounted magazine in which multiple bolts were stacked and a large operating handle. When drawn to the rear, the handle both cocked and, at the full extent of the draw, released the bowstring, firing the bolt that had dropped automatically into the flight groove. There was no separate trigger. The crossbowman then drove the handle forward, pushing the whole mechanism to the front to re-engage the string for firing as the next bolt took its place in the flight groove, ready to go. Hmm. Now, he cites a fire rate of 10 bolts in 20 seconds compared to a more standard and, again, very general crossbow fire rate of three or four bolts in a minute. But as impressive as this is, the trade-off was limited power and range, thus the need for poison tips on, on, your, on some of your uh, bolt heads. Uh, still, one can imagine using this as kind of like a nuisance or shock weapon alongside other defensive weaponry. Now, um, Needham discusses the box and tube crossbow uh, used around 1257 that featured a vertical drop magazine atop the crossbow. This was noted for its convenience and steadiness. It apparently could also be used easily at night because you didn't actually have to see what you were doing with the loading. Um, though that raises questions about what you're shooting at. I don't know if that's more properly illuminated. I guess you can imagine a scenario where there's moonlight in play and you're in the shadows. Mm. And it's also worth noting, um, especially in the, the, the writings of, of Needham about um, Chinese history and technology, um, that the repeated fire innovations would continue during the gunpowder era of Chinese weaponry. Needham mentions the nine dragon guns that could shoot nine arrows at a time off a single ignition. Uh, this was part of the 15th uh, century frontier arsenal. They also made use of a form of multi-barrel gun that, that was, uh, this is much later on, but it was apparently in line with the European concept of the Robotican or late medieval volley gun of the same time period. 
Now, I have one more uh, kind of mystery weapon to uh, bring up here. Uh, this is one that came up pretty early uh, in, in my research, but coming to it last here because uh, I couldn't really get a straight answer on it. And it concerns something called the Panjagan. Uh, so this would have been a either a bow or a crossbow or some sort of a bow technique. It's uncertain uh, associated with the Sasanian Empire. This was, uh, of course, an Iranian empire from 224 to 651. Uh, we've discussed uh, this empire on past episodes of the show. But um, yeah, it seems to have been a weapon or a weapon system or just a strategy. And it's unclear if descriptions are referring to a projectile weapon or an archery technique. It's even been speculated, though, that it might have been a repeating crossbow of some form. Hmm. I was looking at a book by uh, Kaveh Faruka uh, titled Sasanian Elite Cavalry, A.D. 224 through 642. Uh, I should note that this book has an illustration on the front, and this may be like a stock illustration because I found it some other places as well, that shows uh, a, a man on a horse in, in armor firing some sort of strange weapon that has like five uh, arrow slots or five grooves, and there are like five arrows flying out of the thing. Hmm. So I, I, I assume that that is supposed to be an artist uh, depiction of the Panjigan. But uh, uh, it, it, the book itself goes into more detail here. So the name means five device, but there are no known surviving examples to go on. Um, the author here writes that it, it might have been a quiver system for accessing five arrows in a row fairly quickly, rather than what was apparently the typical Sasanian approach of holding three arrows in the same hand as the bow while you were firing. Mm -hmm. um, he speculates that it was likely intended whatever it was as a, a, as a, like a spread fire weapon or a, some sort of a technique to spread your fire, while other perhaps more highly skilled archers, and certainly Roman accounts speak of Sasanian archery skill, could focus their fire. So, you know, you have, like, say, multiple arrows flying through the air, and you know, this poses a certain threat, but then perhaps you have more skilled archers that are actually doing the lethal work alongside this. But ultimately, who knows? Maybe it was some sort of repeating crossbow. Uh, but uh, the, the details are lost to history, apparently. Mm, interesting. Where are the repeating crossbows in Dungeons and Dragons, though? Not sure. I don't know. I've never come across one. I assume that means they're not there. Um, I mean, it, they've got to be there. Someone, someone has at least homebrewed a repeating crossbow, right? And a quick search on D&D Beyond shows that there are some uh, some references to them. So maybe the Darrow used them in the Underdark. Uh, looks like they maybe show up in Waterdeep, but they don't have a prominent place in the player's handbook or anything. This might be a, bit, a dumb question, but how do you get lumber in the Underdark? Because they don't have trees down there, right? It's just big mushrooms. So do you use mushroom fiber as lumber? to make your, you know, your wooden structures and tools, or do you have to go to the surface to get trees for lumber? Uh, well, you've answered your own question because, yes, you use the mushrooms. There's a particular mushroom that is called zirka wood or zirk wood uh, that is the primary building material of the Underdark. Man, you, you know all the answers. <laughs> I didn't know there was an answer to that. I, I ran a campaign in the Underdark for a while. So the Underdark, I have a lot of uh, answers on, but... Um, uh, other parts of the D&D world, I, I'm, I have, my, my knowledge is a little more vague and spread out. And I guess we end where we began with D&D. With &D. Well, uh, does that do it for you with the crossbow, Rob? 
I think so. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of things in the history of the crossbow that, you know, we didn't have time to, to touch on, but I think we hit all the, the most important things. So, but we'd love to hear from anyone out there. If you have examples of what we've been talking about in, uh, you know, medieval flavored media concerning the crossbow, if you yourself are a crossbow enthusiast, uh, then I'm sure you have some insight to share with us. Everything's fair game. We'll remind you that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with episodes, core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Lister Mail on Mondays. On Wednesdays, we usually do a short form monster fact or artifact episode. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Uh, we'll remind you that if you are on social media these days, well, you know, check us out. Our, um, our accounts are up and active again, so you can follow what episodes are coming out on those accounts. If you use Instagram, check out uh, SDBYM Podcast. That is our handle there. That is our newish handle. Uh, the old one uh, has been lost to us. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.